You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. over the past year, you know we're in the book of Acts, and uh, how cool that our passage, as we've gone through Acts for a long time, falls on a resurrection passage. So we're just continuing that journey. So if you have your Bibles, encourage you to turn to uh, Acts 21. A number of years ago, Time Magazine wrapped up their year with a cover story asking a pretty important question. The question is, who's biggest? Who's biggest? Now, they're not talking about the biggest loser. This had nothing to do with Guinea's book or who's the tallest, although Jack Plaguey, I think you, you win out today. Stand up real quick. <laughs> Definitely there's the tallest. Uh, had the privilege to do their wedding, and it was different. You know what I mean? Dwarfed a little bit. So the question, who's biggest, had nothing to do with that, but it did have everything to do with influence. And so the tagline read this. Over the past 2,000 years, the top 100 influencers, who is number one? That was the tagline. And so let me ask you a question. Would it surprise you this morning to know that Jesus Christ ranked number one? He did. And it begged the question for me, why number one? Was it his presence of care and comfort and counsel? Was it his healing touch and ongoing miracles? Was it that he represented God in such a glorious way? Or was it more tied to Holy Week, his death at Calvary? Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. His burial and then the resurrection Easter Sunday. I would suggest this, folks. It's all of the above and so much more. However, everything in the Bible, according to Scripture, hinges on the resurrection. Let me show you a key passage this morning. It's on the screen. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, notice the next phrase. It's a pretty remarkable phrase. Your faith is worthless. Null and void, it means nothing. However, you are still in your sins. But then he goes on to say, but if Christ is raised, we have a genuine hope. We have a living faith. Today we celebrate that Christ Jesus has been raised from the grave. Amen? What's wonderful, you look back on history, and this is easy to find, because we do have a historical narrative. Jesus is the topic and the focal point of more literature, art, and music than any individual in history. Our calendar is dated to his birth, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. We celebrate two major holidays, Christmas and Easter, pointing to his birth and his resurrection. The institutions globally, when you travel, you'll see that they're often established. Hospitals, schools, universities, in the name of Christ. And then you look at care around the world, benevolence, ministries like Compassion International, Feed My Starving Children, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, all point to Jesus. And I would contend, that's why the Apostle Paul said this. He says, my goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. 
that's a statement that needs a little bit of reflection. His goal in life was first to know Jesus personally and intimately, and then the power that raised Jesus from the grave. Folks, that is a remarkable, remarkable goal in life. And so as I prepared for this morning, that was my prayer for each and every one of us here today, that you would know Jesus and you would know the power of his resurrection. So what we're going to do is something a little bit different. We're going to look at Acts 21. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's story. Some of you are familiar. Some of you are unfamiliar. But Paul's story is quite remarkable. Why? He experienced the power of the resurrection in his life. His life was absolutely changed, radically changed. So where do we begin with Paul's story? Let's begin with his backstory. His backstory is found in 1 Corinthians 15.9. I have a backstory. I became a Christian when I was 19. And for a number of years as a teenager, it was riotous living. Paul had a backstory, and it's 10 times worse than mine. It's interesting. Here's what he says. He says, testimony-wise, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Notice what he says about his pre-Christian experience. He says, I'm least. I'm the lesser. He says, I'm not even worthy to be in this office called apostleship. Why? One reason. He hated Christians. He hated the church. If you know Acts chapter 7, Paul was holding the coats of those who stoned the first Christian martyr to death. His name is Stephen. You can go to Jerusalem today. There is a gate in the old city identified as Stephen's gate where they believe the stoning took place. This is remarkable. He hated Christ. So what happened? He went from a persecutor to the apostle Paul. Well, let me show you his God story. His God story is recorded in 1 Corinthians 15. And there's many other places you could go, but this one I chose in particular because of Easter Sunday. Trek with me. Paul writes to church and to us, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That Christ died for our sins, notice according to the scripture, this is Old Testament he's referring to. New Testament had not yet been written. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day, notice, according to the scriptures. He's going back to the Old Testament. And then he appeared to Cephas, Peter. Then to the 12, the 12 disciples. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive. They can testify. They can tell their story. This isn't fanciful. This isn't made up. This is no fable. But some have fallen asleep. What a beautiful phrase for Christian death. We don't die, we just pass on into eternity, eternal life it's called. We fall asleep. How cool is that? Then he appeared to James. This is James's brother who didn't believe on him early in Jesus' ministry. In fact, James thought he was crazy. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one abnormally born, listen to that phrase. He, Jesus, the resurrected one, in literal physical form, appeared to Paul. Everything changed. He went from a persecutor, a hater, someone who was antagonistic, to someone who just got empowered, transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, this morning I want to end with Paul's life story. Because about 25, 30 years before he was martyred, he literally was beheaded under Nero, 67 AD, for the gospel. 
but he spent about 30 years of his life sharing the good news. So if you have your Connect card, here's the blessing this morning. The Apostle Paul's story will demonstrate that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and folks, this is a beautiful word, can transform your life. It transformed Paul's absolutely. That's the testimony of the New Testament. It transformed mine 42 years ago. The stories you've heard this morning are beautiful. The transformation that takes place when the gospel is embraced, when the power of the resurrection changes your life. There's so much we could say about this topic, but I'm just going to stick to the Bible, stick to the passage. So Acts 21, we're going to look at three transformations. Transformation number one, Paul was changed from religion to relationship. So stick with me. I want to unpack that. And I'm not picking on religion, please. That's not my heart. But you're going to see the Apostle Paul's story. He was a very religious man. He had a lot of religion going on, but it fell short. And we're going to talk about why. So, Acts, 21, Acts 22, I'm sorry, verse 1. Paul, Paul said, brothers and fathers, and by the way, he's in Jerusalem now. He's being persecuted. He's being harassed for his faith. He gets up before his countrymen uh, at the praetorium. Again, it's on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You can go there. And he, he speaks to his people in defense of his faith, of, his, of the gospel. So he says, brothers and fathers, Listen now to my defense before you. The word there is apologia, given an apologetic for the faith, explaining why the faith is real. It's rational. You can hang your hat on it. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even quieter. He continued, I'm a Jewish man. Notice his credentials. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He was a Roman citizen, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. Who is Gamaliel? One of the leading rabbis in the school of Hillel in the first century. A big deal, a big name. He's a spiritual titan when you study under Gamaliel. He's educated according to the strict view of our patriarchal law. In other words, he was a law keeper, the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. You're familiar with 10 commandments, right? One of them is keep the Sabbath. What the Jews did is they created 39 ways you must or must not keep the Sabbath. Paul says, I keep all 39. I'm a law keeper. I'm strict. I'm a Sabbath keeper. And that's one of the 633 commands given in the Old Testament. This guy's all in patriarchal law. And notice the next phrase, being zealous for God. Why does he bring that up? He was zealous to kill Christians. He thought Christians were blasphemers. And according to the law, it was okay to do that. Just as all of you are today, I persecuted this way to death, binding, putting both men and women in jail, as both the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. After I received letters from them to the brothers, I traveled to Damascus to bring those who were prisoners there to be punished in Jerusalem. Friends, Paul had some serious spiritual credentials, would you agree? Jewish, Philippians 3, Pharisee of Pharisee. He was a law keeper, all in, strict, code. He's being trained under one of the leading rabbis. He knew his stuff. He knew Old Testament uh, scriptures. He's zealous. Man, you speak against Judaism. You blaspheme. You're going to pay. He persecuted the church. And the list goes on and on. If anyone was Jewish or anyone was religious in scripture, it was Paul. Now, 
Martin Luther said this, the great reformer, if you're familiar, some of you have a Lutheran background, he said, religion is the default mode of the human hearts. I want to unpack that just for a moment because that was Paul. He was absolutely all in, 100% Jewish, religious, count me in. Religion is the default mode. Here's how I define religion. Man-made rules and regulations that when kept, notice, earn merit, earn favor with God. In other words, you create your 39 things you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Check, check, check. Merit, badges, I'm good, I'm the man, and I'm making the grade God is pleased. And folks, that's religion at the core. Now again, I have a fondness for Judaism. I love Judaism. I lived in Israel. I studied in Israel. I love Judaism. What I don't love, I don't appreciate, is taking what God has given as a gift and then codifying it, and somehow you're going to earn favor and merit with God. For instance, um, well, let me tell you a story that might illustrate this. A number of years ago, Ellen and I uh, had the privilege to take a family. They invited us, hey, would you take us to Israel on a study tour? So we worked about a year, and we planned that, and we took them. And so we were there about 10 days, just had the time of our life. And uh, we're down in the Red Sea. This is the Red Sea of the Bible. We're at a place called uh, Elat, Gulf of Aqaba. Uh, two young adult girls were on the trip, and I thought, well, let's hang out in uh, the Red Sea, the beach, and all that stuff for about a day or two, let them relax, snorkel, swim. It'll be really cool for them, and then we'll get on to the history and archaeology and all the pilgrim sites. So let me show you the hotel we were at. This is a really nice hotel. I didn't pay a penny. I just said, yeah, if that's where you want to go, you go. She booked it. So here we are in this beautiful resort. Unbeknownst to me was two things. One, <laughs> this is a Shabbat hotel. Anybody know what a Shabbat hotel is? When Sabbath happens, things change at the hotel. And I mean, everything changes. Guess what? Those 39 things, they keep it. So here's one of the funnest things that would happen. There's two kind of ele elevators in a Shabbat hotel. There is the uh, kosher Shabbat Sabbath elevator, and then there is the Gentile elevator. And of course, guys like us ride the Gentile elevator. And, you know, we were on floor like 38. And, you, you know, you go to the Gentile elevator, you hit 38, goes there. You're on 38, go down. Guess what happens on the Shabbat elevators? They're pre-programmed, so nobody has to work. You walk on, the doors close, and if you're on 38, guess how many stops? 38. If you're coming down, guess how many stops? 38. So you know what the kosher Jews, the Orthodox Jews do? They're smart. They're brilliant. They come over to the uh, Gentile elevator. Hey, can I join you? Could you hit number 38? Gotcha. Gotcha, man. Loving this. They are so happy. But the kicker that week, because we were only there one night, the kicker was this. It's Saturday morning. Picture this. And many of you know I'm an early riser, and I'm out and just enjoying the mountains of Moab, the Red Sea, the hotel breakfast is getting ready. There's this beautiful, beautiful latte machine. I'm just like, oh, yes, coffee time. And then all of a sudden I look up. There's a sign. This machine does not work on Shabbat. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just started giggling. So all of a sudden, Tracy, who asked us to take her, comes down. I said, Tracy, check this out. You're going to crack up. She wasn't cracking up. 
She paid a lot for that room. I said, Tracy, this is a teachable moment. Just imagine what Jesus experienced. He said the Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift from God for people. And we've codified it. So we use it as a teachable moment. We found coffee down the beach somewhere. Yes, we did. We walked and found a coffee kiosk. That's what you have to do when it's Shabbat. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Judaism. I love Judaism. What I don't love is religion. I don't love when we take a gift from God like the Sabbath and codified it in 39 ways you can and cannot do it. And it's sad. That's the essence of religion. You know what happened to Paul when he met the resurrected Christ? It's remarkable. Let me show it to you. It's Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He says, everything that was gained to me, meaning religion, my spiritual credentials, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Think about it. I took all my religious credentials, all my spiritual degrees, and I just put them on a shelf. I just buried them because of Christ. Then he says, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in the view of the surpassing value of, notice his goal, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Dear friends, that's a beautiful picture of moving from religion to relationship. Paul had every spiritual credential the world could offer, and yet when he discovered Christ, when he came to know Christ, everything changed. He moved from religion to an intimate, covenant love relationship. And that's the privilege each and every one of us have this morning, to know Christ personally. What a gift. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said seven things. One of the final things he said is, it is finished. What's finished? The work that God gave him to do. Jesus worked so we don't have to. Jesus performed. He lived perfect. Why? So we can rely on his righteousness, not our righteousness. Jesus accomplished the will of God so we can put our faith and trust in him. It is finished is a beautiful, beautiful word. Transformation number two. From doubter to disciple. From doubter to disciple. And again, I just wanted to follow the passage as natural as I could this morning. And so in verses 6 through 9, we'll see again what happened to Paul. But why do you think he persecuted the church? Why do you think he hated Christ? Why do you think he advocated prison for households, husbands, wives, children who said yes to Christianity? There's only one reason. He didn't believe it. Period. He was a doubter on steroids. He couldn't comprehend that Jesus, the Messiah, would die, give his life a ransom for many. What Paul missed was Messiah ben Joseph in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Paul was looking for Messiah ben David, the conquering king. That day's coming. Revelation 19 and 20. But Jesus first came as the suffering servant to give his life a ransom for many. And so Paul couldn't comprehend that, but here's what happened, track with me. It is in Acts 22, six through nine. He says, as I was traveling near Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, very specific, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And by the way, that's his Greek name. So he had a Greek name, Saul, grew up in Tarsus, Paul, Jewish. Why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said to me, 
I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Look at verse 8 of Acts 22. It's key. When Jesus said these words, everything changed. I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The personal pronoun there, I am, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Moses said, God, what do I say to Pharaoh when I show up? I'm just a shepherd man. I'm a senior man. I'm old. What do I say? He says, tell him, I am sent you, the eternal one. That's what I am means. In the Gospel of John, there's seven I am statements. You may be familiar. I'm the light of the world. I'm the way, truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection of life. Uh, and the list goes on and on. I'm the door. When he said that, boom, the light bulb came out. I am Jesus the Nazarene. And Paul knew he was talking about the eternal God. What a remarkable thing. Now, folks, the question this morning is, because some of you sitting here right now are doubting what I'm saying. You doubt the resurrection. Why? Because it's a miracle. It's pretty unusual. As a pastor, I've done a lot of funerals. I haven't seen anyone raised from the grave. So this is hard to believe. Yes, it is. Of course it is. However, it's according to the scriptures. It's been God's plan. It's been validated by at least 11 New Testament appearances. And then if you look at extra biblical literature in the first century, Roman historian Josephus, Tacitus, Pliny, um, boy, just a lot of extra biblical leader talking about Jesus, his works, but also his resurrection. Yes, we can believe, but doubt's real. So let me show you how real doubt is, just to show you how honest scripture is. Here is the honesty of scripture. It's found in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And I'm just going to focus for time on the first part. Jesus is raised from the grave. It says this, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. We think we know where this is. It's called Mount Arbel, 800 feet hovering over the Sea of Galilee in northern Galilee, one of the most majestic places in Galilee. All right? When they saw him, notice two things that happened. Don't miss this. If you miss it, you miss the honesty of Scripture. Some worshiped, but some did what? You could say it. They doubted. Friends, if you're doubting this morning, you're in good company with Scripture. These are the 11 disciples who were with Jesus, called aside to do his will. They see him resurrected in Galilee. This is before he ascends into heaven. It says some worship, some doubted. So the question you have to ask this morning is, what do you do with your doubt? And here's the encouragement. And I believe this with all my heart. The goal with doubt is to move from doubt, to grow out of doubt, and grow into faith. Faith is a journey. It's a process. My spiritual journey, when I first heard the gospel, took me about a year later to say yes. I now understood it was God who worked in my heart, and the, the new life in Christ began. So there's nothing wrong with doubt. We grow out of doubt. We grow into faith. That's scripture. Now, let me tell you a really fun story. Uh, here's a gentleman, and I rarely do this in your Connect card, but I put four of his books in your Connect card. Why I believe in this guy. Uh, a few years ago, just a handful of years ago, this gentleman, his name is Jay Warner Wallace. He was a devout atheist. I wouldn't say he's antagonistic. He had nothing to like, he didn't have a, pipe, uh, a fight to pick at, with Christianity. Some do. But he was just an atheist. He just didn't believe in God. 
So something happened in his wife's faith journey. She started going to church, and she heard a pastor say something like this. I'm paraphrasing. You know what? You could trust the Bible. It's true. It's valid. It's backed up by archaeology, by history. It's not just a book of fables or morals or ethics. It's based in reality, God encountering people. He's sitting there that day as a devout atheist, and he's listening. He says, ha, okay, I got it. So here's his backstory. He is a trained police officer and a detective. He believes in what's called forensic. Any officers in the house? Any detectives? I didn't think so, but let me show you a book he wrote. It's called Forensic Faith. You know what you do at a crime scene? All you do is try to get all the evidence lined up, you measure it, you weigh it, and then you make your conclusions. So he walks out of that church service, here's what he says. I'm going to take my profession, I'm a trained forensic, I'm going to take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see if they add up. You know what what happened to him? Not only did they add up, it transformed his life. Let me show you some of the books he's written. Again, I rarely do this, so... He's a prolific author right now. He's traveling the globe, and he's telling people, listen, this book, the four Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, holds up to forensics. There's evidence that demands a verdict. So if you're doubting, what do you do? Lean into your doubts. Grow through your doubts. Grow into faith. Highly recommend this gentleman. And so, thank God, his words, just honest. Some of the disciples doubted. But they went on to be kingdom people. This guy was a devout atheist, went on to serve the Lord. Deal with your doubts. Lean into your doubts. Don't run from your doubts. And if you have questions, let's talk. Because we believe this is true. It's true. Now, finally, transformation number three. We'll tie it all together. From antagonist to kingdom assignment. And again, I just wanted you to know, I just walked through these verses and here it was. So verse 10, then I said, what should I do, Lord? So just imagine having that encounter with Christ. He says, all right, so what's the next steps here? And here's what Jesus says. And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you'll be told about everything that is, notice this next phrase, that is assigned for you to do. You know what's beautiful about the Apostle Paul? Let me show you Time Magazine again. He was in the top 100, number 36. He went from a hater of Christ, a hater of Christianity. He encountered Jesus, the risen Christ, on the Damascus Road. His life was transformed, gave 25, 30 years of his life to kingdom causes, and even today. Time Magazine. By the way, Time Magazine, all for Christianity? Probably not. But at least they were honest. They gave the reports. Why did Paul get such a high rating as influencer over 2,000 years? Here's why. He came to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. And friends, this is way more than head knowledge. This is heart transformation. This guy's life was changed forever. And so what did Paul commit himself to do? I want to encourage you. He committed himself to do one thing. When he encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, the first thing that's real remarkable in the book of Acts, chapter 9, he got baptized. After he got baptized, he started sharing the gospel. 
And so this morning, I want to close just a few minutes and share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Share with you the message Paul shared for the last 25 to 30 years of his life. Share with you the hope that you can have in this life and for all eternity. What a good thing it is. It's called the good news. So where does the gospel begin? It always begins with God's design. The gospel always begins with who God is, right? And so what is God's design? You can read that throughout all of scripture. But if you go back to Genesis, it's real simple. God designed us to have fellowship with him. To have intimacy and relationship, not religion. And that's what happened to Paul. He went from religion to relationship. What it suggests then is God cares for us. I want you to think just for a moment of how much God cares for you this morning. He cares for your well-being, you as an individual. He cares for your marriage and your children and your family. He deeply cares for your pursuits and passions in life. Your employments, your finances, your home, your health. He cares for your overall, overall well-being. What a gift that is to know that's the God who we worship this morning. But folks, what's sad about God's design, and we've all experienced this, this isn't new. We have drifted from his design. It's called sin. And I know sin isn't a popular word in our culture. We like to make excuses for our really bad behavior. But sin is real according to scripture. Romans 3.23, for all have sin. I throw my hat into the ring and fallen short of God's glory or God's design. That's what sin does, right? But friends, please hear me. There's consequences to sin. I think we realize that, right? It always has consequences. Categorically, what happens in our lives is it leads to brokenness. That's what sin does. It fractures our lives. It fractures our relationship with God and with each other. But what do we do in our brokenness? Typically, we try to fix it ourselves. I tried to do that for a few years during my teen years. It didn't work out so well, folks. And so where do we run? Sometimes to alcohol, to drugs, self-medication, to pills. Sometimes we run to workaholism, to things of this life, stuff finances, accumulation. We try to fill this void that only God can fill. And it's one thing after another. You know what the problem with that is? It grows or adds to our brokenness. And so the question we have to ask is, how do we deal with brokenness? And here's the gift. I believe, and I know this personally, firsthand experience, brokenness is a gift. You know why brokenness is a gift? It causes us to realize we need help beyond ourselves to truly change. And God sees our brokenness, knows we need help we can't change on our own. And what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus Christ. That's called the gospel. If you're not familiar with the word gospel, all that means is good news, folks. The gospel is beautiful. You know what the gospel, in essence, is? It's Holy Week. If you were here with us, Good Friday, what a remarkable service. Why do we call it good? Pastor Jason reminded us. Jesus Christ gave his life a ransom for many. He cries out from Calvary, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looks to a thief on the cross, a capital criminal. Today you'll be with me in heaven. What a good day for a thief, would you agree? A remarkable day. That's why it's good. God died in our place. He was buried, but guess what? 
Here we are today, resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. Now, the question this morning, and often is misunderstood, how do you and I respond to the gospel? Folks, it's not just knowing it in my head. I grew up in the church knowing it. It's internalizing it in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit working conviction over our sin. There's two words that are very important in the Bible. First word is repentance. And please don't shy away from that word. I love this word. Repentance means a change. And when you're broken, you know you need change. It means I'm going on a one-way street the wrong way. You ever have that experience? Teenagers, if you had that experience, what would you do? You wouldn't call home. Hey, you know, mom, I'm on the wrong way. I'm going to, no, you turn around as quick as possible. You go the right way. That's what repentance is. It's a 180. I'm going my way, sin's way. Boom, God works this gift of repentance. And you go his way. That's what the thief on the cross did. The second one is belief. And again, folks, it's not just in your head. I know you need to know the facts. We've covered that today. It's also in your hearts. John chapter 1, verse 12 is a beautiful statement. Jesus said these words. He says, To as many as believed on me, to them he gave the power, notice power, to become children of God, even to those who receive me into their life. Believing and receiving go hand in hand. And what that means is, I know in my head, I receive in my heart, and my life is transformed. Now here's the beautiful thing, going back to God's design, And then what happens when you put your faith and trust in Christ? Restoration begins. It's called new life in Christ. And then you go on this new journey. It's called the faith journey. You have the privilege to pursue God through Jesus Christ and see your life redesigned, restored. That's the gospel. And so this morning, I want to close and give you an opportunity to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not a profound thing, and yet it can be an absolutely transformational thing. And so what do you need to do? Number one, do you see the sin in your life that brings the brokenness in your world? Relationships towards God and each other. Do you see how self-medicating and the stuff of this world can't fill the void? And you're just done with that. You want to deal with the brokenness. And so you take your sin and you confess that sin, you repent of your sin, and put your faith and trust in Christ. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Folks, that's a gift. That's the heart and soul of Easter. When I became a Christian, I had a pastor share with me a very similar message. And he said, if you're here this evening and you want to turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I want to help you. And I want to do the same this morning. Sometimes we don't know how to approach God. Sometimes we we don't know what prayer is all about. And so the pastor led us in a simple prayer that night. And I called upon the name of the Lord and was saved. So could I ask a favor just for a moment? Could we please, everyone, just bow your head, close your eyes? This is a very sacred moment. Our life is but a handbreadth, folks, 70, 80 years. We're talking now about eternity. How do we deal with our brokenness? How do we move from brokenness to abundance? 
How do we move from a broken relationship with God to a reconciled relationship with God? To experiencing no forgiveness, to experiencing complete forgiveness through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. Turn from your sin, repentance, put your faith and trust in Christ. So if you're here this morning and God's spirit has worked in your heart, you recognize you're a sinner, you recognize sin has broken you, separated you from God, and is bringing chaos, and you want to see that change. You want to turn from your sin, repentance, turn to Jesus, put your faith and trust in him. I invite you in the quietness of your heart to pray this prayer to the Lord. Folks, the prayer isn't mystical or magical. God sees your heart. He knows if there's faith. So pray with me if that's your desire. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you designed me to have fellowship with you, that you care for me. Father, you know I'm broken. You see my sin. And today I confess and turn from that sin. And I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I accept that he died in my place. I accept that he took my brokenness in his life so I could be forgiven. So today I receive you by faith. I thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray in Jesus' name you'd help me live for you from this day forward. Amen.